You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host. Uh, once again for the Doctor's Lounge, thank you very much once again for spending an hour with us. Um, the Doctor's Lounge is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. We are the only healthcare policy think tank that is covered almost exclusively by full-time board-certified, full-time practicing physicians. And so we, we work all day seeing patients and then learn what we can about healthcare policy on nights and weekends and do things like this show and the Orlando meeting and all of the things that the, uh, that the foundation brings to you. So today... I'm actually going to make good on a promise. I'm going to keep a promise, maybe for once, and uh, and bring to you Dr. Robert Berry, who is our guest today. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great being on the show because I listen to it all the time. Well, th- this is a great story that uh, that you know you sent us a letter, and I talked about it two weeks ago, and it was uh, my turn to be on the air last. And uh, you write this letter that says, uh, you know, Mike and Hal have been listening to you for about six months, have enjoyed the shows, and uh, that I'm here in, in Greenville, Tennessee, which happens to be where my wife, Amy, grew up, and, uh, and that, that, that you've been listening and actually, uh, you know, came to the Orlando meeting and, and, and did some really neat things that you're going to uh, tell us about. But why don't you start with, you know, your background in med school and residence and that stuff and sort of paint the background for where we go from there. Well, I went to uh, the University of North Carolina um, uh, for med school, graduated there in 89 and did a residency in primary care internal medicine at UAB in Birmingham, finished there in 92, and then worked a lot of ERs, especially uh, a um, high-volume ER in Tuscaloosa that was seeing over um, 100,000 patients a year in a 60-bed ER, and so that's where I really learned primary care. Uh, and the experience that I had there has um, has been very helpful through what I'm doing now. Um, I, I worked ERs for until about 96, moved to Greenville because a med student of mine was a family practice doc here, and I joined the internal medicine part but went back to the ER. And then in around uh, 2001, I decided to uh, start this practice uh, because um, I could uh, the, the patients that I uh, that I, were tr- I was treating in the ER. I felt like I was part of a system that was gouging them, in, in point of fact, and I could take care of 95% of uh, their problems in my practice, and so. Um, they're basically my neighbors, and uh, we trade. Uh, you know, uh, they work on my car. They they uh, restore things in the house. They do this, those sorts of things. They cut the lawn. So um, I decided to uh, step out in faith and uh, and do that. And um, um, uh, it wasn't a really good time to be doing it. Uh, I thought that maybe the medical savings accounts, uh, which are now health savings accounts, uh, that might take off somewhat, but it really didn't. Um, And I was competing against uh, $10 copays and $250 deductibles at that time. 
Well, this was now, just so everybody's keeping track of this, this was long before there was any significant direct primary care in the technical sense. I mean, this was simply a cash-only right. fee-for-service practice, so a far more difficult model uh, to build than what we have now. Well, it was the only model out there at the time. Uh, fee-for-service, we, there, was, there were no concierge practices. They didn't come about until about three or four uh, years later. Um, and um, um, so, yeah, it was fee-for-service. Um, and there were a lot of ten care patient Medicaid patients here, and uh, but uh, we got it going, and um, you know, building it from the ground up, and and now, uh, after going to the conference uh, in Orlando in November, I went down there to see is this should I join the direct primary care movement, and decided to for a number of reasons, uh, and um, then started to make the transition. Um, in January, um, and uh, we're our goal is 500, and we're about 70 short of it. Uh, so we're we're growing pretty fast. In fact, one week we we signed up 41. So um, that's uh, it's it has been a smooth transition compared to going from an insurance based practice to insurance free. I I would think. I mean, intuitively, and you tell me if I'm right about this or not. That yeah, I w- if they're already used to paying you cash that in, in some ways you could almost offer this as kind of a of, of a cheaper way to do it depending on how frequently they're visiting the doc for some patients it's, it's less expensive right and if they ever uh sustain a laceration on the weekend i'll come in and fix it whereas if they would go to the er which they would uh get a, a two thousand dollar bill which in fact i think you just did last weekend if i understand uh, right. a couple of weekends ago i did yeah. that's true um so, um, I mean, you've got a particularly uh, challenging situation because you're you're solo, pretty yeah. much. And so, you know, just so everybody out there listening gets this, I mean, you don't really have any. I mean, you've got one person you kind of talked about, but I mean, you don't have a call group no. or or anybody who shares this. You're basically on, you know, twenty four seven with, uh, right. you know. So, so for those of you listening, he needs a partner. Hey, yeah, hey, there you go. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I need a. Uh, see, I'm I'm 60 now. I need somebody. Uh, the average age, I think, for DPC is 42. So, anybody out there listening who's interested in working in a uh, a very beautiful area of the country in Northeast Tennessee. Uh, is welcome to give me a call. Well, I I will vouch for that as uh, one who is uh, uh, happily married to an East Tennessee girl. That uh, that's the it is definitely the place to be. And uh, yeah, we're probably going to do that for a retirement gig. Um, yeah, I can't help you in primary care, here. <laughs> but uh, I could I could sublease some office space from you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So. Um, you know, back in, in, in that period of time, uh, there were other practices that were going insurance-free as well, a fee-for-service insurance-free, uh, taking care of, you know, the average person off the street, not an MDVIP. Right. Uh, there was a, a fellow who started Simple Care out in Washington uh, State. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Simple Care. Uh, so it, it started gaining some momentum because the medical savings accounts um, – that's what they were called at the time, became right. health savings account, and they be, were becoming more popular. And um, I was asked to testify before the Joint Economic uh, Committee of Congress back around that time uh, to show what was out there. 
And um, but then it, um, it it never really grew as a movement like the direct primary care has. Uh, and so when I was looking at it in um, November, I'm thinking, okay. This is not going anywhere. This fee-for-service insurance-free is not going anywhere. This DPC is. I think I'll join them. And um, uh, I think it's a good move. It's a good move for us because I I needed to cut back from 2,500 patients to 500. It's a lot more manageable. Okay. So there was a point where you were getting badly overworked. And with the overhead, you can't slow down. No. Well, you know, sometimes I would have to say I can't see any new, more, more new patients a day. And a lot of these patients have very complex, interesting problems. They are very, a lot of pathology because they haven't seen a doctor forever. Sure. A lot of them don't have insurance. Uh, and a lot of them now have high deductibles. But most of the folks we were seeing didn't have insurance. Even though there's, um, I think, six government-subsidized clinics within 20 miles of our practice. So, so tell me what's the what's the difference now? I mean, definitely uh, less patient volume. But we were talking earlier about some other uh, favorable changes you were able to make since you no longer have to take insurance and all of the ugly overhead that goes with it. Well, yeah, uh, I went from working in an ER back in two thousand one to this fee for service insurance free practice. So I've never taken insurance. Oh, that's true. Uh, so you okay, didn't have so- to, but okay. So that was that was that, that was that's probably the most difficult part for any physician. If they're uh, insurance based, they're going to have a hard you know it's a harder thing to do. Um, although it's probably a lot easier now with the higher deductibles than it was when I started it. Right, exactly. It, it's it, it's now uh, you know the 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 cost even up front is much more competitive with high premiums and uh, and high deductibles than it was like you said back when it was. A two hundred and fifty dollar deductible and a much uh, lower premium. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. I think it's it's the way to go these days, and um, I don't know why anybody would sign the insurance contracts. They're so onerous, um, and um, they're really anti-patient and anti-doctor. So, as we slip towards that part of the conversation, I mean, is your practice either you know the way it was before, which was cash only, fee for service, and now direct primary care? I mean, is that is that making any waves in the community? Is that getting noticed by the uh, by the institutions that kind of rule the show there, or no, how's that I think going? I'm, I'm still just kind of under the radar, like I've always been. <laughs> you know, um, they don't really mess with me and I don't mess with them. We do have about 13, over 13,000 patient charts. Uh, most of them are downstairs, about 2,500 active. Um, and I've tried to persuade, you know, a, a number of the active patients to, uh, to be to join the DPC, and they don't seem to quite understand yet that when I hit 500, they're no. Lo- I've told them they're no longer a part of the practice. They're going to have to find another doctor. Unless I can find another doctor to come on and, and uh, start building their own DPC here. Um, and take over the uh, make their own transition of whatever I have left over um, of the uh, fee for service folks. Uh, I don't know how many people would want to do the DPC at that point. Um, so you're you, so you do have sort of a hybrid practice of sorts now because you're still seeing some folks with the um, 
with uh, with, a, with a cash only fee for service. Right. But, but when you hit your target, you're going to close that down. Right. Gotcha. I, I might take in some you know old patients that have been around for a while. I, I can't turn them away if they want right. to join at that point. Uh, I, I don't think that they really understand that that's what I'm going to do. And when yeah. they show up, I'm going to have to say, you know, I, I, this is what I told you. We wrote you a letter in January. And when you came here in, in March, I told you that. But it's it's happening. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no no uh, question. Um, all right, we're approaching the end of the uh, of okay. the first segment. But just the next segment, I want to talk about this ballot health care thing. And, and because at some point you have sort of uh, hit the – uh, the radar because you gave a talk in town <clears throat> and um, uh, next segment uh, I think we want to talk about this whole thing with ballot health care if that's okay that'd be fine all right well we're at the end of the segment you're listening to the doctor's lounge on America's web radio stay with us the Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host for this week, alternating weeks with the inimitable Dr. Hal Schertz here in the Doctor's Lounge. So we are talking to Dr. Robert Berry, a DPC doc who hails from my wife's hometown of Greenville, Tennessee, and uh, the first segment we talked about his story, uh, and, and I note that uh, you and I were both in med school at the same time, uh, but I was uh, 10 miles up the road at Duke about the same time, because I graduated in 88 when you graduated in, in 89, so yeah. so got about the same timeline. But anyhow, so you've been in Greenville since, uh, what, 1996? That's correct, yeah. And uh, But you've, you've done some things to take a little higher profile against some of the problems that have come across uh, your healthcare market. So why don't you tell us about that? Well, recently um, I gave a speech. Uh, I was asked to give a speech uh, by a actually a very progressive organization here in Greenville. Um, the event was called Shining a Light on Ballot Health. Uh, Ballot Health is the new health system monopoly uh, that – um, came to be in February of 2018. It was um, a combination of two health systems that were competing against each other, Wellmont Health System and uh, Mountain States Health Alliance. 
And uh, I really didn't know any of this was taking place until it actually happened. Um, because I really don't have much uh, to do with the health systems anyway. Um, most of my patients don't go to the hospitals because they charge too much. So right, exactly. We, found, we have found workarounds uh, where they don't have to go to the hospital. But um, so Ballot Health, uh, it, it's the only uh, health system here in northeast Tennessee and southwest Virginia uh, they they have about 30 different hospitals, uh, a lot of um, outpatient surgery centers, nursing homes. Um, they own doctors' practices, uh, have bought up some of the doctors' practices, um, like the uh, pediatric practice here in town. They bought them up, and perhaps others. I don't really keep abreast of all that news, um, but they probably control about 70% of the health care here in in this area, this region of the country, they applied for a certificate of public advantage over a period of several years leading up to their actually coming into being. Um, and I reviewed some of that process, don't know too much about it, except that uh, it, it took place at the executive level in our state government. Uh, it was the health commissioner and the state attorney general who signed off on it, never went to the legislature, and it kind of came in through the back door. And now uh, it's very difficult to unscramble that egg because they have um, we have two hospitals or had two hospitals here in town com- competing against one, t- uh, one another. And now there's uh, Greenville Hospital, uh, Community Hospital East, and Greenville Community Hospital West. But the east one is the only one that admits to the to the hospital now, and the uh, west one does not. But it still maintains an ER. It has a geriatric psych- uh, psychiatry ward and a rehab facility as well. Um, so um, I was asked to give this speech because uh, there has been a lot of complaints about ballot health. Um, the, the major complaint that I actually get from patients is that, and, and this is not just isolated, I'm talking about maybe 30, 40 patients have told me that they have uh, been sent to collections before they even receive a bill. That's Ouch. how disorganized they are. Um, and they're, they're getting a worse reputation all the time. Um, I have patients who tell me that they'll go anywhere but ballot, which means that I have to scramble to try to find them specialists to see um, towards Knoxville, either in Morristown, uh, which is about 30 miles from here, or Knoxville, which is about 60 or 70 miles. So that's where I'm sending patients. Um, so Laughlin and Tacoma are both, they've been swallowed by the beast, huh? They have. Um, and there's no undoing it, uh, even though um, supposedly July 31st is the um, last date where the uh, the COPA, they call it, can um, be um, nullified. Uh-huh. Um, so, and I think on the 18th of this month in Washington, D.C., there is going to be a meeting about COPAs. Um, Supposedly, I guess there are, there are other COPAs throughout the country. Um, 
Now, is that linked to like certificate of need or, or I, I, I don't know no, if I've no. heard that term before. What does a COPA entitle you to? Uh, a monopoly. Okay. Lovely. <laughs> Perfect. A monopoly. And uh, so that's what they'll have because they're supposed to be provi- – that monopoly is supposed to provide a, a public advantage. Um, presumably uh, there were um, uh, redundant um, technology services provided by both hospitals that by combining the two would uh, would give some economy of scale. Um, and um, therefore the costs would go down. The prices would go down, the services would be consolidated and be um, better, supposedly. <laughs> When's the last time that actually happened from a healthcare merger? <laughs> now, you know better than I because you keep up with that stuff. But I can tell you from, from here that's not happening because the doctors are leaving. Well, it never happens. I mean, that's that's the whole point is they, they have more bargaining leverage with insurers, so they, they jack up the prices and, you know, they play this game where, you know, that with Medicare where they go from, you know, non-facility to facility. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of, of this, you know, economy of scale and consolidation concept actually panning out to save anything. Well, it turns out to be an unholy alliance of uh, insurance companies and hospitals and the government, um, and it's a hard, hard um, uh, cartel to to crack. Uh, so but that's what it is. And so these guys, that, but I mean, you got invited to speak at an event that, and, and they ask you to to speak about ballots. So somebody out there with some degree of of clout or at least interest. Uh, Sponsored an event there in the middle of downtown Greenville, and they did. And and I mean, were you the only person that was talking about ballot, or was it was no, the whole theme were, of the there evening? Were two others. There was a, a fellow who, who had he's a doctor, uh, OBGYN, Doctor Olson uh, from um, ETSU, who had actually uh, run as a Democratic candidate for uh, the uh, as a representative against uh, Phil Rowe here. Uh-huh. And lost at the last last election. He he spoke, and uh, then Danny Cook. Danny Cook uh, has um, she is a self appointed defender of of uh, the people here against ballot. Uh, she's very smart um, and um, has a lot of charisma. She has her own website, and uh, so she was the ma- major speaker. I just was uh, one of the warm-up speakers for her. Well, but yeah, but the, the, the whole theme, of the, I mean, it sounds like there's, uh, you know, something that approaches a critical mass that, that uh, is, is revolting against this, uh, this takeover of, of the healthcare market, maybe? Well, in, it's worse in Kingsport um, because they are having their uh, neonatal intensive care unit being moved to uh, Johnson City and their level one trauma center being moved to Johnson City when actually, as I understand it, the, the ER is a better facility in Kingsport than in Johnson City, but the university is in Johnson City, the East Tennessee State University, which has a medical school. So there's a big fight in Kingsport over this. Um, Greenville, the Greenville market right now is uh, pretty quiescent compared to what's going on in Kingsport. Yeah, it's just more people and bigger metropolitan area, I suppose. Right. 
So, so you think maybe direct primary care is a is a method of uh, of of giving people an alternative to to checking into the great big behemoth of uh, of an insurance <laughs> system that uh, that gives them a win win with with better care and lower cost and all those things. You named it, um, and uh, actually, it, they've been great for our practice because people are flocking in here to escape ballot. Um, and and they tell you that. I mean, it, yeah, and that's they, that's not an inference. I mean, you hear that every week. I hear it, unfortunately, every day that send me anywhere but ballot. And so I'm having to figure out where I refer patients because I've always referred patients, most of them, the folks here in town. Um, and a lot more people have high deductibles, which makes it more challenging now because they are essentially uninsured for routine health care. So... It's fortunate that I'd already found, you know, people who could do colonoscopies relatively inexpensively, CTs, MRIs, uh, that sort of thing. So um, you've been able to negotiate with, like, freestanding other other docs and freestanding, like, imaging well, facilities or, or at least for I, some I of this? I don't really negotiate. I just find out what their prices are. Fair and enough. They are, um, they are direct uh, pay-friendly as opposed to the hospital, which is not direct pay-friendly. And so I send them to the direct pay-friendly folks. Um, and sometimes they have to drive a, a little ways, but it, for them it's worth it if they're going to save $2,000 on MRI if they go 30 miles. Um, that, that gets their interest pretty quickly. Um, does, does Tennessee have a, a favorable legislative climate for DPC? Or you, yes. Okay. There was a law passed in July of, of 2017 okay. saying that DPCs are not insurance. Okay, perfect. So, so it's it's very it would be very difficult for the for the behemoth to to do much to try and make you stumble. Well, um, you know they're a behemoth, and they could probably do about they could do a lot of things. I think probably that. Uh, well, not without looking pretty bad. I mean, part, but it certainly wouldn't bring very good publicity to them if they they became in direct conflict with me and the best thing is just to let me take care of my 500 patients and uh they you know and and be quiet but right. um I, i'm really probably not going to be quiet because i'm going thinking about investing in a a digital sign <laughs> okay <laughs> that is going to tell the differences in prices for example I'll put that uh, out on the connector, out on 11E or something? No, no, right here. This is the second most travel, this has the greatest, second greatest uh, traffic count in town. Where are uh, you exactly? The bypass, the bypass I'm on uh, Tuscan Boulevard, okay. just down from the hospital. Okay. Uh, and um, uh, so, yeah, people will be reading things about the, um, I do have a sign out in front of the building what our fee-for-service prices are. Like for a UTI, it's $60. For a simple laceration, it's, I've forgotten, $125. Those kinds of things. Um, but people don't stop to pull into the driveway to look at it, you know. Uh, right. This is going to be on up front. Um, and, um, okay, I'm going to cut you off. Challenges. Let's pick this up on the next segment because I already ran a little over. You're listening to the Doctor's okay. Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host on America's Web Radio, sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Thanks so much again for joining us one more time. We've got more and more news uh, to talk about every day. Uh, this is kind of an odd time in sort of the healthcare uh, news cycle as, as the debate on Medicare for all kind of rattles on and takes a little bit of a pause here before the, the campaigns get uh, hot and heavy in earnest. Uh, the good news is that uh, with uh, Docs for Patient Care Foundation, we've got stuff going on or at least are connected to uh, things going on at the state level and some good things are happening. So with me is uh, it's our fearless, peerless leader, champion, and president, Dr. Lee Gross, president of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation to help uh, get us up to speed on what's been happening lately. Lee, thanks once again for joining. Hey, Mike. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Sure, of course, of course. That's uh, you know we kind of do like uh, like they do on Fox News. We have our core guests that come on on a regular basis, and <laughs> and and you're the one. So you know, anytime there's something that uh, that needs a bit of cerebral input, uh, you're the one I always turn to. So going uh, to the Washington desk. Right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, this is like uh, you know just having having the panel uh, or or having the brain trust. So uh, so Lee, there's been some stuff, of course, going on both. Both in Georgia and Florida, and the the Florida stuff is is sort of built on the stuff that you worked so hard uh, and were directly involved with last year. Um, but some things have happened this year, and there are some interesting lessons to learn, especially for other states considering this. So, why don't you walk us through it? Well, before I do that, I want you you can go ahead and share your news about Georgia. I think that's a pretty exciting accomplishment there. Okay, well, sure. Wanna, no, we we can certainly do Georgia first. Yeah, uh, the the news in Georgia is is good, and at least in my world was a little unexpected because I thought I was connected to this and didn't learn about it until the day the governor signed it. But yes, uh, uh, SB Senate Bill eighteen. Um, passed of uh, 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 you know giving direct primary care in Georgia a direct explicit green light and it, uh, it it's the bill you always hope to get Lee it, it, it was pure it's two pages 
and all it says, in effect, is that direct primary care is legal. It's not insurance. It is not subject to the requirements of an insurance company uh, and lays out a very bare-bones set of requirements that uh, defines direct primary care and defines what the relationship should look like. But, uh, uh, yes, I mean, if I were inclined to torture everyone, I could read you the bill in, in, in three minutes. <laughs> please don't. But, but please don't. <laughs> or we'll, we'll lose everybody before you get to the good stuff. Exactly. That's not the first time that bill was, was introduced. I mean, that bill had been introduced multiple times, yet something happened different this year um, that pushed that over the finish line. Do you know what? Um, I think, well, one thing from an ethereal level, you can talk about what's happening at the federal level and what happened in the choice and competition report, which may or may not have an effect. I think the change in leadership in the House of Representatives, and I know that's going to have an effect on certificate of need probably next year, but there was a change in House leadership, um, and I forget the specifics off the top of my head, but we basically got – uh, we replaced someone who was uh, very much, uh, you know, on the side of the insurance industry with somebody who wasn't, and I think that probably helped a great deal. And I think going directly to the the legislators on the 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 insurance committee and sort of getting them to understand what direct primary care was, uh, you know, they really did think it was insurance. They thought it was a plan until it was explained to them and somebody actually showed them what direct primary care was and how powerful it was that they that they stopped pushing back against it and, and allow it to go through. And once it did go through, it, it sailed pretty much this year, didn't it? Uh, yeah, the votes were not close. I mean, the votes were overwhelmingly positive. It was not a close, dramatic vote. I just kind of looked it all up about 20 minutes ago, and yeah, there were yeah. it was overwhelming yes votes in in both chambers, and the governor, of course, signed it without any difficulty. And here we are. So, um, you know, that's a bill that took me about seven years to pass here in Florida, and I just started that process with the state of Alaska. So, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I testified via telephone with a. The uh, House of Representatives in the state of Alaska on their DPC bill. Uh, that bill happened to contain quotas in it that mandated a certain percentage of the practice uh, accept Medicare and Medicaid patients. Uh, and working with the, the, the lawmakers there, working with the bill sponsors, we were able to get that language stricken from the bill that, that requires uh, government insurance participation to do direct primary care there. But that bill's probably going to die in committee this year. Um, and then we'll just kind of keep taking another bite with the apple in Alaska, but hopefully we keep on adding more states to this. More than half the states in the country now have this protection. We yeah, it, it's an interesting – go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You know, it, it, it's an interesting process with um, legislation at the state level, and it was something I was completely unaware of until a few years ago that since – the state legislatures are in such short sessions that, you know, you get a piece of it done and then the session's over and you go after it the next year, the next year, and the year after that, which is, you know, different than what happens in Washington for sure. Exactly. So we had a big, big session here in Florida for healthcare freedom. This was a, this was a huge win for us. Uh, we, we tackled some major, major milestones here. So let's share that. Yes, please do. So, as you know, we passed this our direct primary care legislation last year, uh, and between last year and this year, I think the legislature really, really liked what they saw happening on the direct primary care landscape. Uh, the, the, I think the care that they were seeing and the access that they were seeing through direct primary care startups really impressed the legislature so much that they said, well, if this is a good model for primary care, why don't we just expand it to specialists as well and let everyone participate in this? And so... This was not something that we initiated. This was something that organically developed uh, based upon the success of the model. And so a lawmaker up in Jacksonville introduced a bill 
that expanded direct primary care to all specialists. Not really important to get into the, the logistics and how that bill was, was written, but it, it basically, if you are licensed to practice medicine in the state of Florida, you have the ability to enter into a fixed-fee arrangement with a patient and not be considered a health insurance plan. So consider an endocrinologist or a diabetes specialist uh, entering into a fixed-fee arrangement with a diabetic patient. Okay, what's the importance of that is that it now frees up the doctors to innovate directly with their patients. So if you want to say, as, a, you know, as an endocrinologist, you, know, you can email me in limited times, you can call me, you can text me, you can come into the office, uh, there's no limitation on the contacts. We're just going to make sure you're cared for properly. That is now perfectly allowable in the state of Florida. Probably allowable in most places anyway, but now it is absolutely specifically protected in Florida. And with the you know, way technology is evolving and the you know, different ways you can communicate with patients, it's important to be able to have these unlimited touches to, to impact patient care. And, and let's um, walk through exactly how that works to make sure everybody understands that. In, in a traditional you know, CPT-coded fee-for-service arrangement, uh, the physician is working for free unless they physically see you in the office, which means that everything has to go through a physical office visit. Uh, when you have direct primary care, and correct me if I don't have this right, I mean, you're getting the monthly fee. Everybody's incentives are aligned. You want the care to be the best quality, the most efficient, and, and for, for everybody involved, which opens all modalities like you were talking about. Exactly, exactly. The, the incentives are all aligned to make sure that the patients care, the right patient in the right setting at the right time for the right price. Um, all those things are, are done. Uh, now, the interesting thing is whenever you're opening up the, the state regulations and the state law books for editing, uh, it opens up the opportunities and threats for anybody that wants to mess with that legislation. And that's precisely what happened here in Florida. So if you're thinking about doing this and, and so well, we, you know, we, we got our DPC legislation, now let's take another bite at the apple. It's a, it was a very risky proposition to do this. Um, and we fought off some very, very hostile amendments that would have been very detrimental to direct power care in Florida had they been successful. Uh, and so one example would be specifically that they would have banned direct power care doctors from working with small businesses. You know, that was our epiphany when we launched Epiphany Health Direct Primary Care in 2010. Well, it's the, the story of how it started. You were approached by a business, if memory serves. Yeah. So the business wanted to contract with us to take care of their employees. That would have been banned um, under this amendment that was filed that we had killed uh, Medicaid patients that are seeking affordable options for, for care. Uh, we've been banned from seeking out care through direct primary care practices if this legislation passed. So, um, it, the amendment was, were, were very important for us to jump on these and we got on quickly and, and mobilized a force to, to, uh, knock those out pretty effectively. And, and this was, this was merely a matter of, of education, uh, as opposed to having some sort of dark force somewhere that you couldn't really see or understand, sort of pushing another agenda. Yes, no, something else. Um, in terms of the motivation behind the the actual amendment itself, or how we how we were able to dismantle it? Okay, well, I, I don't know. In, in a sense, I guess it doesn't matter. I, I guess the lesson to be learned here is 
that uh, that any time that you know it, it's all part of this sausage making process that that is legislation, um, which yeah. is that it's got to go through a lot of steps. There are a lot of people that can get their eyes and their hands on this, and especially like you were saying, you you take a bill that's locked down or a law that's locked down and and gives you certain things, and uh, you know everything's on the table. You could lose ground as easily as you gain ground. Yep. So as the, my first step into into law, the lawmaking process, the lobbyist told me, he said, as long as the legislature's in, in uh, session, nobody's safe. <laughs> okay. Uh, Good way of putting it. And that is a, a lesson that I've taken with me, and this was a, a prime example. Um, so we have a, a couple minutes left, but I just wanted to also share that we did manage to repeal most of the certificate of need uh, requirements in the state of Florida so that that antiquated law from the 1970s that was a, uh, a competitor veto law, crony capitalism that uh, sets up monopolies and, and uh, restricts competition and limits choice and drives up costs. Um, every administration since the Reagan administration has, has pushed to overturn these certificate of need requirements. Um, but this was laid out in the President's Choice and Competition Report that was released last year. Uh, as a blueprint for free market reforms in the states, and the, Flo- the state of Florida and Governor DeSantis and the, and the Speaker of the House used this as a blueprint to guide their legislative agenda for this last session, and they were able to push finally since the 1980s the repeal of certificate of need requirements. You no longer have to ask your competitors for permission to compete with them. Uh, you know, as it turns out, that, you know the original plan was to limit the supply of services so that they could decrease the spending on it. But it turns out when you limit the supply of services, you limit the supply of services. Um, and they got exactly what the laws were intended to do, was people were being blocked out of access and care. Uh, and and so this has a law. very real sort of implication in your backyard, if I understand correctly. Absolutely. I, pa- I practice medicine in the largest city in the state of Florida that has no hospital. We have 70,000 70, residents. And we do not have a hospital. We applied for it four times and were rejected by the state, um, telling us that, you know, they, for one reason or another, that we didn't meet their qualifications to have a hospital. Meanwhile, the city of Sarasota, which is, you know, 45 minutes north of us, has uh, two hospitals and we're just approved for two more. And they have a smaller population. Well, I expect that people are already on the move to fix that. Uh, we're, uh, we're running out of time on segment one. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week on America's Web Radio. Thank you very much for joining us once again. So hopefully uh, you enjoyed the uh, last segment where we talked to uh, our fearless, peerless leader, Dr. Lee Gross, one more time about his latest uh, accomplishments, and they are many, and they accumulate more and more by the week. You heard him talk about uh, legislative victories in Florida. Uh, he's uh, now involved in Alaska's uh, process to uh, support direct primary care. Uh, so, uh, you know, lots and lots of neat stuff and lessons to be learned. I thought it was very interesting uh, that uh, once you uh, introduce a bill that uh, opens the door to changing legislative language that you can both gain ground as you intend to do, but you could lose ground as well uh, as uh, the forces of evil will take that opportunity to uh, uh, to make things worse instead of better. And it was interesting that there was almost a disaster with that bill because there was language introduced that was going to uh, make it uh, illegal for direct primary care practices to contract with businesses, which basically kicks two legs out from under the three-legged stool. So very interesting uh, lessons indeed to be sure. So for this segment, uh, I think we're going to just talk about some some stuff I've found in my travels, reading and researching and doing stuff, uh, just kind of a, a, an update for the news. And then we'll put some, a, a couple of more speakers on from uh, uh, no, uh, November's uh, DPC meeting to uh, round out the hour. But first thing we'll talk about is uh, I'm going to try to start off on a positive note. I probably won't stay there for long, but I'm going to try to start off on a positive note. And, and you know that uh, I have criticized uh, heavily recently uh, this whole concept of artificial intelligence in health information technology, and I stand behind those criticisms. But I found a couple of things to talk about in the artificial intelligence uh, realm, or at least something that passes as artificial intelligence. Right? We talked about the fact that AI really has no exact definition that is universally accepted. But at least one can say that this is stuff that uh, requires heavy-duty computing power that might actually do some good in the world of medicine. The first one comes from a very unlikely source, Motor Trend Magazine, believe it or not. I do spend some time reading stuff that's not medicine or healthcare policy. Uh, I also happen to be a car guy. We've never really talked about that, which is probably just as well. Um, but from the current issue of Motor Trend Magazine, there was an article about something called Metacars. Uh, uh, what are Metacars? Well, the idea is that... Uh, they have acceleration sensors, you know, vehicle accident sensors, right? Cars already have that, right? If you have a vehicle with OnStar or something equivalent, uh, you know, the accelerometers in that vehicle can sense an accident. They can sense if the car's rolled over, if you've hit something or something like that and see if you're still awake. And if you're not conscious, automatically call 911 on your behalf if you're unable to do so. That technology is already out there and you can buy it, of course. Uh, but this whole concept of a meta car takes that one step further, a big step further. 
which is to use a series of accelerometers in the car to really get a accurate picture of exactly how much force was involved in the accident and where those forces were applied, whether or not the airbags deployed, uh, how many passengers were in the car at the time, and you know, sort of a black box thing, right, records the, the speed and everything else in the seconds leading up to the accident. And merge that with a database that I presume is currently under development that can plot the relationship between accident types, you know, the acceleration profile of an accident, and the injuries that the occupants of the vehicle will sustain. And the idea is you build a model that allows you to predict based on exactly how the accident occurred that can then predict, uh, hopefully, quite reliably what injuries occurred and not only call 911 but but actually specify exactly what happened and what they need so instead of uh, you know an ambulance responding in a generic fashion and discovering that the accident's severe and you need a medevac helicopter call the helicopter first call them both together uh, as opposed to that two-step process and, and that's very important because i remember being taught in trauma uh, something called the golden hour which is the first hour following an accident that you know how and when and the timing of of life-saving intervention can make a big difference in the outcome. So here's something, here's something where the power of, of information technology, you know, merging databases with sensors really could be put to good use to do something that we can't do by any method today. So I thought that was a very interesting, uh, you know, way to apply, you know, and far more useful than a lot of the stuff that I criticize, I think. Um, the other one actually had to do with IBM's Watson. So this is the second example now, and this was something I came across, I want to say on LinkedIn, although I, I couldn't find it again when I was looking for it to prep for the show, but I remember it pretty well. It was one of these, uh, you know, invites uh, from an IT company, it happened to be IBM, and, and on behalf of the Watson product, of course. Uh, but the uh, the invitation was for physicians, and it was that if you are engaged in research, let Watson maintain. Watson, listen to me. <laughs> let Watson um, uh, maintain your uh, your patient database and uh, and and take care of uh, you know mining your data and 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 you know stewarding your data and uh, and let Watson have a look at it, and maybe there'll be things found in your data that you didn't know. But even as just sort of a custodial function, uh, and then apply the AI to the data that it collects and, and just let it have at it as opposed to just looking at your hypothesis, maybe you find something. And I thought that was something that was, you know, a, a, a and what I liked about it was that the scope is relatively narrow, right? This isn't curing cancer or, or you know, some sort of moonshot, you know, ridiculous sort of concept. This was, uh, you know, something that was very, can be very finite, can be very limited and defined in scope and really has a chance to be something that's, that's positive, so that's it for the speaking of positive. That's it for the positive comments I have. The rest of this is all going to be uh, sort of things I found. You know, I I get up in the morning and read stuff that comes across my iPad and whatnot, and sort of take notes. and And if I find something really neat, I put it in an application called Notability. Which, if you do any note taking or any uh, you know organizing of stuff you read, I, I recommend highly. But the the common theme, and we've got, we'll see as many as the segment allows us to do. What do we got about uh, seven minutes, uh, six minutes left, about halfway through, um, is to uh, talk about um, th- these. There's a series of articles, and, and the, the common theme among all these articles is what happens when third-party payers upset the free market or upset the natural order 
of the universe. So uh, we're going to start with uh, sort of the resident equivalent of what we've talked about before, right? We've talked about before, and if you listen to me, you're familiar with the idea that electronic medical records, information technology wastes more time than it saves, and that for every hour we spend with patients, we have to spend two hours with the EMR. Uh, makes doctors very inefficient, and that's very true. So what happens if you look at residents, doctors in training, and uh, what is the effect um, in, on, on residency training of all of this health information technology. So this was a very interesting um, study that was uh, uh, that was uh, actually done at uh, UPenn. Uh, so you know, leading institution, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Uh, they looked at eighty interns. Uh, and the, the gender breakdown and everything was all, you know, the way it should have been, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, who they recruited for the study. And they, they observed them with time, motion, observation techniques, which are, which are pretty well vetted and pretty well proven. And discovered that uh, out of a 24-hour day, and I'm trying to read this and find it, they spent a whopping three hours out of every 24-hour day face-to-face with patients. Three out of 24. So, you know, barely, what is that going to be, 15% or something, or, you know, more than 10, less than 20 uh, percent of the time is spent actually face-to-face with patients, touching them, talking to them, examining them, treating them, doing stuff, um, the, the, the stuff that doctors do. Uh, what do you suppose they spent the rest of their time doing? Yeah, wait for it. Basically in front of the computer, of course. Um, not all of it. Some of it was in education, and of course that's fine. Um, but, uh, you know, what they call indirect uh, patient care, which is probably a term that is too kind, uh, was uh, almost 16 hours, 15.9 hours. So, you know, do the math. You know, that's what, two-thirds, three-quarters of the time that they're in front of a computer and 10 to 15 percent of their time uh, in front of patients. So it's just like with practicing physicians, except that it's uh, way worse. Uh, and that's, you know, and, and I can, I can attest to that myself. I see, uh, you know, my, my hospital that I go to for most of my stuff has now been annexed into the teaching hospital network in our town of Atlanta. And, uh, yeah, you can go in the, uh, the, the doctor's lounge or the surgeon's lounge and, and find basically a bunch of, uh, young doctors at a row of computers. And that's what they're doing. They, they, you know, I, the wards are empty and the computer rooms are full. And, and that's, that's kind of how, how it is. And, and, you know, it's a sad thing. Um, next. And again, on the subject of hospitals and inpatient care, uh, uh, whatnot, is uh, an article that I found on the subject of hospitalists, written by a hospitalist, um, one uh, David M. Mitchell, uh, Dr. Mitchell, and, uh, and, and he talks about the six uh, things that are wrong with hospital medicine, sort of the six, six steps to um, why hospital, the, the hospitalist specialty had so much promise in terms of making hospital care better, but uh, it has been reduced uh, to nothing but, uh, according to this author, uh, sort of a, a a gaming mechanism, a mechanism to survive, you know, in the third party payer system. And again, I don't I don't criticize the hospitalists for this, and I don't criticize the hospitals for what's here. Uh, but you know, it, again, it's 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 all about financial survival, and it's sad that it's that way, but it is. So so what are the steps? 
Well, step one, or what he calls the first pillar, is um, that you you hire a bunch of young doctors, young hospitalists that are young and hungry and have big student loans they got to pay off and all that kind of stuff, and you put them on a fixed salary, uh, maybe with a little productivity bonus, maybe not, but basically their expenses are fixed, and uh, and then you work them as hard as you can. And, and you can get away with that for a while. Uh, so, you know, you, you make their patient loads uh, as high as you can. That's step one. Step two uh, is what the, uh, the hospitalists will now do in response to the work overload is to offload as much as they can onto specialist consults as they possibly can. Uh, and, and that's step two. And that means that, you know, their, their assessment and plan reads, you know, and I'm reading from the article, acute kidney injury per nephrology, chest pain per cardiology, cellulitis per infectious disease. So basically every line item in their assessment and plan is merely to defer to the specialist consultant uh, in terms of what's going on. So that's step two. Step one, overwork your young hire. Step two, um, you know, the young hires then respond by offloading as much of the work as possible to specialists. Step three, uh, and I'm flipping through here, is to start the, the, the process of gaming the system, which is now to manipulate your medical documentation to make your case mix index, right? That's the measure of how sick your patients are and the measure of how much you get paid. Make the case mix index as high as possible. Um, so, you know, an elevated, a slightly elevated troponin becomes an MI. You know, a cough and a temperature of 99 becomes sepsis. Um, I'm reading examples. I'm reading examples from the article. Uh, and so the idea is to make patients look on paper as sick as possible because that's how you get paid. And again, a third-party payer has no idea. They've never seen the patient, so they can't measure value. So you have all these weird arbitrary uh, systems in place. Um, pillar four is uh, step two of gaming the system, and uh, we'll get to this at the next segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.